it going? Zig coming in at the top. Today on the show, we have Steve Almas. Steve, you might know him from Suicide Commandos, Beat Rodeo, or maybe one of his seven solo albums. He has an eighth one coming out. It's called Everywhere You've Been. Steve is a beautiful example of why punk is the way to start. Jumping in right from making music for the fun of it, living in the energy, and taking that creativity and drive and focusing it into beautiful song craftsmanship, which is what his career and musical journey has led him to. I was almost not ready to talk with Steve. I would get lost in his stories and kind of zone into it and forget what I was going to ask next because they were so epic and kind of all taken. Like, he played with the Ramones. He was friends with Tommy Ramone. How do you bounce back from that? Also, he had a bit... This was a beautiful tie into the Cleveland punk scene of early 70s. Now, I've been studying... At this point, when I did this interview, I just cracked open some books into studying into the into the Cleveland punk scene and really trying to get some of the names down and the people down. Um, and this is going to be the one of many where you're going to hear a lot of these names come up, like Peter Lofner. And there's going to be times where I mix it up. And same with uh, uh, even Perubu, because I would just started at this point to really study them. If you guys don't know, some of these episodes are coming out months later. And Steve's new album is out now. Um, everywhere you've been, you can hear it on all the streaming platforms. We're going to listen to one song right now. Cigarettes, Coffee, or You. Check it. Cigarettes, Coffee, or You. Coffee? No way. You? I'm gonna grab my coffee cup. 
Before we get any further, this podcast is mixed by Studio 44 Cleveland. If you go to Studio 44 Cleveland and hit up Jay Sparrow, he'll make your stuff sound great. So if you go to Studio 44 Cleveland at gmail.com or Studio 44 Cleveland at Facebook and reach out to Jay Sparrow, he can make your stream needs, your audio needs, your visual needs, your video needs look and all sound great. And if you can like, subscribe, rate, review to the podcast and all the podcast platforms, and maybe give us a like or a follow on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. It really helps me keep talking to cool people and sharing those insights with you. So without further ado, here's my interview with Steve Almis. All right, well, how's it going, man? Well, it's, it's been kind of a long day today. Uh, you know, we, we switched our time till four because I was supposed to get my COVID vaccine today. And yeah. uh, then we got six inches of snow and they canceled the appointment. So I'm stuck down here in Long Island, and they're supposed to reschedule in the morning. So I'm kind of anxious to get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Like not not that you're stuck, but to get it out of the way and that you were able to get a get to I'm a, jump on yeah, the vaccine. I'm a teacher, so I'm a teacher. So okay, I'm, so am I. No way. Oh, what do you teach? What do you teach? <laughs> I teach music. <laughs> I teach. Oh, I, a... yeah. I I know I put a lot of music in my lessons, but I. Uh, I'm normally the um, computer teacher in elementary school, but okay. this year I'm, you know, teaching distance learning, and they gave me a, they gave me a third grade class, so I'm teaching third grade this year. <laughs> oh, like the whole thing? Like you all covering yeah, all subjects? Yeah, covering all subjects. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that gets to be kids. A, 33, 33 kids? kids. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's hard enough to like. I, I work at a charter school. I teach an adapted uh, adapted music course for kids with autism, pre K to senior high. So I'm used uh-huh. to like having a lot of students with a lot of different angles, but it's always at least one subject. So they right. they have to like be like, "What's third grade social studies look like?" Oh yeah, I'm you know? I'm uh, I'm used to one subject too, and uh, I I'm here to tell you, multi subjects is a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. No, I. <I'd... laughs> I've had to fill in for some teachers, and it's not easy. It's not easy trying to figure out, uh, uh, let me just pick up your math lesson. (laughs) I mean, you know, what I can't figure out is, I mean, they don't give you curriculum for everything, like ready-to-go curriculum for all sub. How is that possible? Like, I don't know how old you are, but when I was a kid, you had, like, textbooks for all right. the subjects and right. you went through through the book and so you're i mean here you gotta just like kind of make a lesson every i work like my third there's like well there's like six third grade teachers right now yeah. because there's like some special ed teachers where they have two in a class yeah but yep. we, we divide up the subjects and have to write the lessons every week i mean that's crazy i think (laughs) i agree it's weird it's like do you guys have like at least a standard thing you have the standards to follow right where yeah but that's uh that's not that's more of a hindrance than a help you know right right it's more like uh you know the standards are something for them to yell at you for what you're not doing (laughs) yeah no I, i agree with that it's weird that um in a where, way, uh, where are you? Where are you, by the way? Oh, I'm in Cleveland, so I, I relate to the yeah, snow. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm in New York, so yeah. But um, 
but yeah, it's weird. Like I relate to it's, it'd be kind of cool if you were just that one subject and you got to make your own curriculum bait and had to hit certain points. Right. But when you have to do all these subjects and you don't really, maybe your forte isn't like history or whatever. And like now you science have in my science in my case. <laughs> right. Right. So now you got to figure out what a standard curriculum is and like, so it's cool to have that flexibility if you if you know how to navigate that field and that subject, but if you don't, it's it's very vague, and you're like, "Am I making sure all these kids learn third grade science? I don't know." <laughs> like, yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. Was it? Um, I guess I did a. Our school was online for the first half of it, um, and then we went in person online, kind of like a. Like blended learning that yeah, like blended learning some kids online, and we would I, I I it's a so the charter school has three different buildings and I go to all three, um but instead of going to all three I would go to one and stream to the others from that building and then like push over the card of instruments you know it's ukulele day wow. here they are <laughs> and like it led wow. it lent or led to a lot of like learning how to navigate all this um. Uh, Zoom, Google Meet, uh, streaming. Well, I, that was one thing I was really lucky because I had that all in place already. Nice. I had, I had Google Classrooms, you know, for all my classes, so I could, you know, I just sort of spent my time helping the other people get it set up in March right. when we, when we did it, and uh, that was. That was just lucky I learned that, you know. And, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, n nobody made me. I, I'm I'm just the – I mean, I like that because it's the one subject. I'm just making up the curriculum as I go along. Yeah. You know, seeing what, seeing what other teachers in other schools were doing and just kind of doing it like that. So, anyway. That's, it's cool. Anyway, let's talk about music. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's cool because you get to put yourself into it and that – and I think students pick more, pick up on that. If you're putting, if this is an actual thing you're interested in, and grant third graders, sometimes they don't care about anything. And middle schoolers, they get even worse about not caring about anything. Yeah. But the genuine authenticity that you express with the subject, for the most part, is going to carry. And like, it's kind of, and this is a good segue, it's a good tie into music. <laughs> um, like when you are Absolutely. genuinely expressing yourself on stage people pick up on it or if you're if you're faking your way through it people pick up on it <laughs> how'd you oh yeah we uh we start the day with a song in my online class every day so oh, that's cool uh, is it like and, a... uh, it was a... i have different songs that i sing with them but a nice thing was uh you know we watched the inauguration um a couple weeks back there yeah. and uh when uh when J-Lo came out and started singing This Land Is Your Land, their jaws hit the floor because they couldn't they we sing that song in the class, you oh, know, and they cool. knew it. And they got really excited. You know, they, awesome. couldn't believe J they couldn't believe J they couldn't believe J Lo was singing it. You know? Right. <laughs> well it, it's <laughs> that was that was good. That's cool. It's cool. That's so cool. Like and as a kid, you're like, Oh my gosh, they know that too. It's uh, it's yeah, kind of mind blowing. They'll remember it. Was it, um, so I guess, uh, the, the kind of shift into music, um, what, like, okay, with the Utopia House, what did that teach you? 
Wow, that's a, there's a question. Um, or what? Uh, well, how, how should I phrase it? What have you? What did you learn from the Utopia House experiences? I think that's a better way to phrase it. Well, you know, I mean, um, when I met Chris Osgood and Dave All, the other two Suicide Commandos, they were both living in Utopia House, and my parents' house was just a couple miles away from there, and I. Um, was back living at I went back after a year of college and was living at home when we started the suicide commandos and uh I mean I don't know what I learned from the house so much but I learned like everything from Chris and Dave they were you know two years older than me at an age where two years really made a difference and uh both really smart guys and uh I think it would be safe to say I I hadn't really encountered that many uh, really smart people that were also really cool. And, uh, you know, so I was I just I mean, I learned a lot from those guys just about music and about life. You know, they were both people that had, you know, just knew a lot about a lot of different things. Yeah. So it's... just spending time around them, I think it rubbed off, I hope. <laughs> Well, clearly. Um, so, like, what um, what records were spinning around then? What were like when you? Well, that was like that was like one of the things. Dave had been to England. Yeah. With his, he went to England with his girlfriend, and the records he brought back were the first two Roxy Music records. Nice. Uh, John Cale's the record with Fear was out. Is out the one with Fear is a man's best friend. That record. Uh, uh, Dr. Feelgood and Ducks Deluxe and uh, the pub rock records and like the Roxy Music and uh, Sensational Alex Harvey Band. Nice. And uh, that was all the music we kind of started before, you know, when we started playing, we were like trying to go out and play four sets in bars. Right. So our repertoire, we put all this music into our repertoire and, uh, uh, that made us stand out. Was it because that I remember? Uh, I think Roxy Roxy Music got Cleveland had a big spin with them. Um, oh yeah! Like, uh, but when? So I guess the kind of back step. When did bass? When did you get the bass in your hand? Was it from hanging out with these guys, or was music no, a thing in your life? I, I played. I, I had uh, like basement bands in high school before that. I. My dad bought me a brand new Fender Telecaster bass uh, when I was uh, for a confirmation present when I was 14 years old. So uh, I had played in in junior high and high school. And was it always like so? Okay, so was guitar around the family too? Because you you play both, and like uh, yeah, I, I mean I did start on guitar. Okay, but I got you know. It, the same somebody had to play bass and so right. this guy the guy in the older brother band was selling his bass so i could buy it for 30 dollars, and i became the bass player and uh and then i just i didn't really start playing guitar in bands till i was had beat rodeo you know which which is a while later yeah i always played bass and uh did it kind of help uh, cement, like playing bass, kind of help cement like songwriting 
and seeing it from that perspective because you were filling that gap? Oh, that, well, I mean, that's another thing that I like. I really learned from Chris Os- Chris from Chris Osgood. Chris Osgood yeah. was already writing songs when we started the Suicide Commandos. He had uh, he had graduated from Hampshire College by writing a rock opera, and uh, no one of the songs in that rock opera was Mosquito Crucifixion, which the Suicide Commandos did to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great success later and so i was definitely just keeping an eye on him and him writing songs and that made me want to have a go at it too and then you know that's what i mean we kind of the stuff we liked were like these you know the aforementioned records that dave brought back from england and somebody had the nuggets compilation that Lenny Kay put together and we liked all those sixties uh garage band records and stuff and we were putting those songs in our set and that's how we kind of just, you know, organically got on the ground floor of punk rock because when we started writing our own songs, you know, we were doing what what a lot of other bands were doing. And then uh when we heard the Ramones in like spring of 1976, then that was just, for me, that just put the pedal to the metal of getting going on that, you know, that they could write these these really good songs that had just like three chords in them. And that meant, you know, I mean, you could do something good with something really simple. And uh, that was, that was just the lesson I needed to learn to get started. And, you know, and I started so- songwriting then, and I just never stopped. That's all. It's, what a good introduction with the Ramones, too, or at least a, a good um, a kick, the kick to really get into it, because so much of what the Ramones are, are like, good songs with, like, a ton of energy. <laughs> like, like, I think, yeah. uh, I mean, when you look at the Ramones, it falls into, this is punk, these guys are punk, look at they had the look. But the songs themselves stand out, and like they now. When you first heard the Ramones, was it record? Did you see them? Like, well, no. It, it was. This is an odd story too. We had a personal connection to them. Um, I rented the basement of this when I I wanted to move down to Minneapolis into Minneapolis from out in the suburbs, and yeah. I moved down to Minneapolis and I rented the basement of a house from the school teacher. Huh. There's oh, another teacher. There we go. Ties and, in. Um, well, as it happened, her daughter had run away to New York with Johnny Thunders when the Ramones came through. Okay. And by this, by this time, she was living with Tommy Ramone. Something, Whoa. something she did for the rest of Tommy's life. They got married, and they were to, they were together forever. And but anyway, she so her name was Claudia. Claudia was yeah. sending like cassette tapes and pictures and stuff back from all, from all the stuff that was going on in New York in like CDs and Maxes. And I'm looking at this stuff. And by that time, that stuff was kind of spilling into Roxine magazine, kind of the same stuff that she was sending her mom. And so, yeah, I heard the Ramones the first on a cassette tape that Claudia had sent her mom. Wow. And then we um, we just decided to call up CBGBs then and see if we could go play there. And like, 
Chris Osgood called them and they couldn't believe like a band from Minnesota wanted to come and play at CBGB's, but we did in like, you know, in end of May in 1976. Wow. So it was really, and the first night I went to New York, I went out with Tommy and Claudia and went to this concert, this benefit for Wayne County that the Mink DeVille and New York Dolls and uh, Blondie and uh, all these bands played at. So it was quite a, you know, it was quite an introduction to the scene. You so yes, first into it. Wow, that's incredible. Yes. Whoa. Yeah. How'd that first? How'd that night go at CBGB's? Who'd you guys play with? Uh, it was it was like audition night. I don't so remember like, who any of the other bands okay. were, but there was a group of people like already people from Minneapolis that had moved out to New York, and they all came down, and it was great. We had a great time. And they they invite us back. They gave us another gig. I think we went back there in August, maybe that summer. And then we, you know, then we went out there two or three times a year the next for the next few years. That's amazing. And do you do you remember any of the bills um, progressed after that first one? Like who you guys uh, played? The only bi- the only bill that was memorable was when we were touring with uh, Cleveland's finest, Perubu, nice. and we played. <laughs> We played two nights there with Perubu, and uh, that's really the only time we played there where the other bands on the bill were kind of a factor one way or the other. How how is the crowd for Perubu? I'm I'm, I'm talking to Dave Thomas next week, and I'm a uh, I'm really excited. Oh, give him my regard. Give him my regards, will you? I yeah, I spent we'll do. a lot of I spent a lot of time in Cleveland with those guys. You know, in Cleveland Heights, the yeah. The Disco Drone Record Store and Johnny Dromette and uh, the Perubu were very good to us. That we got our record deal through them. No way. They recommend. They recommended us to uh, somehow. I think. I think we got hooked up with Perubu maybe through Chuck Statler, okay, the filmmaker. But somehow we met them in like '76, and we they would like host a gig for us in Cleveland on our way to New York, which was like the only place to play. Right. And they, they were very, they were great. I mean, a great band and they were very good to us too. Do you remember, was it the Pirates Cove? Yeah. Okay. It was definitely the Pirates. Nice. Wow. Yeah. No, um, it's fascinating. Their music's fascinating. Dave Thomas is a fascinating character and like, um, so it's so crazy how all this, all these scenes were connected and like, I, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I've been super excited to talk to you because I, I know you guys did some to kind of jump years and years ahead. You did a, you guys did a show with Dave Thomas, right, for that benefit show in 2000. We did for, uh, for uh, Laura Kennedy, right, from the from the Bush Tetris. And when I first went to Cleveland, Laura and Cynthia Slay were the like the nerve gas dancers. Crocus had some name for them. But I remember those, these like cute punk girls that were hanging around back then. Now before they had a band. Gotcha. Oh yeah, I, I just I just read about them too. Okay, I didn't then put that and that together. And we did when I at that benefit, uh, Crocus got up and played uh, Final Solution with us. We played Final Solution with him. I should. You know, oh, that's uh, sick. Did you? Ever... It was really fun. Did you meet a uh, Peter? Uh... Peter Lavender? No, he had died. He'd passed by then? Okay. So how's it? So, okay, with that benefit, with uh, uh, um, 
da, 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 I'm losing my brain. Uh, Laura, right? Yeah. She, she uh, so what was her group in like? Her group from... was was the Bush Tetras from New York. Are gotcha. you familiar with them? A little bit, a little bit based oh, on like. Well, here's here's the song. Uh, when we're done, go uh, go to YouTube and listen to "Too Many Creeps" by the Bush Tetras. Too many creeps. Okay. That's a that's they have a lot of good records, but I that's their greatest one. And uh, yeah, they I think you know David came and did that benefit because he knew them as girls that danced at Perubu concerts. Like, Got you. Okay. And, uh, okay. and then later they had. Bush Tetras was one of the biggest bands in New York, and they did well in England too. They were, you know, part of the kind of post punk early '80s scene. They were big in that. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely dive into their stuff. Do you guys ever yeah, go out really? that way? Go out the UK. What's that? Did you guys ever make it out to the UK? No. No. Okay. No. <laughs> we we went to Europe. We went to Germany and Austria and Switzerland. In Beat Rodeo, uh, Suicide Commandos never left the U.S. and Canada, unfortunately. But uh, Beat Rodeo did go to Europe. Okay, well, let's. I guess let's take a a couple steps back. So, Pierubu helped you got help you get um, a recording contract, and you guys recorded at Sound Eighty, right? We did. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about Sound Eighty? Because that was a pretty epic studio. Yeah, unfortunately. Never has a worse sounding record been made on better equipment than <laughs> record. That uh, you know, let's just leave it at that. Uh, you know, I don't wanna disparage anybody's work, but we didn't really know what well, I mean not re- I mean we just didn't know what we were doing as far as recording and we uh the it was a great studio, but we didn't get the best sound out of it. I don't think. Gotcha. Was was it all you guys on your own then? And they're kind of like, yeah, figure it out. Yeah, I think everybody was learning that was involved with the with the project. Yeah. Okay. Well, because you guys, when you guys went into it, like, didn't Dylan just leave? Like, because there's well, that... that had been a that had been a year, a couple years before, but okay. that was where he did. That's where he did a. Big hunk of uh, blood on the tracks, yes. Because right. there's that picture of you guys in front of the mic, like yeah, ah, that's so up, <laughs> that's so epic. Um, but okay, wow, what I I didn't realize how big a role Pirubu played in getting you guys hooked up with him. Um, that's insane. That's cool. So, um, to kind of step it back, you guys, um, when when you guys started playing together, when did like the sets because to get a, to get gigs back then and still now you have to like do the bar gig right you have to play the crowd and maybe it's different now now because of covid but like um when did it become a full original set or was it always well guys? i i don't know that it ever com- okay i mean when we would go to new york we would play all original sets because gotcha. we would play one set okay but even after a while in New York, I think we would do two or in many after a while after the original scene, we would do two sets. But then the cover songs were more like just songs that we felt like we made them our own. And that's why we were doing them. Not uh, not because we had to do four sets a night. But at first, 
we did have to do four sets a night. And that's what got us noticed amongst other musicians in Minneapolis was our choice of, you know, right. odd, odd tunes. And uh, then we started writing our own and more and more and more. And uh, yeah, the original stuff took over for sure. Okay, cool. And and but that's interesting, kind of bouncing back to the idea of the rock opera, um, and in that even that mindset of writing, because that's particular. You're thinking of songs in a, a long form narrative, not just a two minute song reel. When the Suicide Commandos kind of did the breakup hiatus, um, and you headed to New York, was that based off the connections from touring out there and playing CBGBs? Yeah, de- I mean definitely. I had a leg up from being in Suicide Commandos. That got us gigs when I got out there, yes. Gotcha. And and when you started Beat Radio, which started as uh, the Crackers first, right? Well, that was Crackers the Crackers was a different band. Okay. That was the band I moved to that was the band I moved to New York with. And then okay. that only that only lasted a year and a half or something and then after floating around for a little bit, I started Beat Rodeo. Gotcha. And that's really when your songwriting comes through. Like, and it may be just an instrument change, or like, not that it didn't in um, Suicide Commandos, but you're playing guitar in the Beat Radio. And like, it. Well, yeah, it's Rodeo. Radio. Sorry. Gosh, man. Oh, I've been losing no, my mind. Rodeo. Rodeo. <laughs> not radio. Radio. I heard uh, it on the radio. Um, rodeo. Oh, man. Yeah. No, it's all good. No, it, it was. I, I switched to rhythm guitar, and, you know, I had a, a really good bass player. And, good, again, B-Rodeo <laughs> had, had musicians that really, again, sort of took it to another level for me. And, like, people that I could really learn from. And I did. I, I really learned a lot from those guys, too. You know, just about music. Yeah. They were really good players because those and uh that just gave me uh a, a lot of ideas for songs just by what they could do it, it was really good those records are really tight the harmonies are at like another level and it's 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 interesting to see like this kind of like punk start and like all this creative energy used in one way and usually you see the trajectory stay the same but it's really interesting with with your your musical journey, like it gets more in the singer songwriting, and like it stays with that energy and it um, or upbeatness and like um, beat rodeo um, has this like kind of amazing like um, collection of all those skills, and it seems like it much more defined and makes much more sense with the record you just put out and the records that came in between it with your solo career, like. Um, just how the songwriting took like this different path and narrative and like um, evolved to where it's at now. And in that band, it was, it, it's really now the guys that got involved, did they, uh, so the crackers fizzled out and like, how mm-hmm. did you come across these members in this, in um, beat rodeo? Was it just from beat rodeo where Pete beat rodeo were people I met in New York. Right. Right. Uh, the crackers were people from Minneapolis oh, okay. that came to New York. All right. And then got and uh yeah, I uh I met the guitar player of Beat Rodeo through his girl I knew his girlfriend and it was just a chance meeting like that. And he um 
he knew the other two, he knew the bass player and the drummer. And then although the drummer and I, uh, Peter Moser had our own connection because he had gone to Hampshire college with Chris Osgood from the suicide commandos. So that was just a bit of synchronicity there too. But uh, yeah, it was when I met Bill, Bill knew the other players and uh, we got that together. Okay. Now working with a group like in New York, that had to be much harder feat to do than in Minneapolis, I believe. Like, well, you know, that's a funny thing yeah. that the first half of the eighties in New York was this golden time for bands. If you got something going, there were so many, you know, the drinking age was 18 and kids <laughs> poured into the kids, college kids, poured into the clubs from you know new jersey and brooklyn and queens and everywhere kids poured into manhattan and would come to these clubs and the pay was really good and you could play at you could play a dance interior you could play a peppermint lounge you could play at the ritz you could play at the lone star uh, you could play at maxwell's in hoboken and they all paid really well and uh, it probably something that maybe the B Rodeo could have done a little better. It was it was really hard to go off and tour where the pay wasn't as good and the work where in the long drives and everything because it was so nice to play in New York yeah. and you could play like you could play one or two gigs a month and pay your rent. It was great and that kind of died around. 86 87 when the drinking age changed mm. at to 21 and the college kids couldn't go to the clubs anymore right. that changed it but it wasn't um, you know rents were still cheap in new york it it was really a golden age to be in a band in new york it was a great time gotcha so okay because like I'm thinking of the. It was better. No, it was better than Minneapolis. Wow. It was really good. Yeah, because it was re really good. That's amazing. <laughs> that's that'd be so great if that's how it still was. It was an amazing scene. It was just amazing time to be there and be be playing in bands. It was great. Yeah. Wow. Do you so kind of the step back? I know. Uh, I don't know. I'm all excited and like, but um. Did you guys ever share a bill with the Ramones? Any of those guys at that point? Suicide Commandos played in St. Paul with the Ramones. No way. Yes. What was that like? It, it, it was fantastic. Wow. I I guess it was in 70... I can't remember if it was 76 or 77. I think it was... It was. I guess it was 77. Maybe it was 76. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> But it was before 78, for sure. That'd be intense. Oh, that's so cool. Um, so... No, I would say... It was, not in, it was in 77. It was... Yeah, and it was great. We had a big party afterwards that they all came yeah. to. Uh, we, had, we had a party for them. It was really fun, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, well, and you guys had that connect um, with Tommy and, like, that's... Wow. Yeah. So they yeah. kind of already kind of knew you. Wow, that's so awesome. <laughs> cool. Now, um, to kind of hop back for a second, when um, with Hoboken, 
when did you uh, when did you start working with the bongos and did that that was between the crackers and beat road okay so that was kind of before you you had this thing going and new york was working out but um what was that like because those guys made quite a quite a fuss in um in hoboken their first i think their first record it those which is really sort of a compilation of their singles right. is still re- really really good record i they uh and uh yeah rich you know i didn't really join the band i was like a second guitarist when they toured for a couple of tours you know yeah. and so i didn't really i didn't really get involved create creatively with the band there really wasn't room you know that was that was richard's deal and richard you know really did me a solid and helped me kind of launch my solo thing. The first thing I did was that EP with him called Beat Ro- the title of the record was called Beat Rodeo. And then I made a group of the same name. Yeah. And was that made up of the members that from Minneapolis that split? No, the, the, the Beat Rodeo EP is basically me and Richard and Mitch Easter. Gotcha. Okay. Not, Hoboken's got a, it's like a little blimp. It's just uh, like a courageous Yeah, scene. Maxwell's was a, Maxwell's was a fantastic place to play. Did uh, you ever cross paths with uh, Chris Butler? I met Chris and I think we played a gig with Tim Huey in Peru, but once at a theater in Cleveland. Okay, nice. I think... I think because yeah, they were the Akron scene, and Chris, uh, yeah. he was he lived out in Hoboken for a while, with um the doing yeah. the solo stuff and the waitresses. Yeah, yeah, really good, talented dude. Yeah, that's crazy how small the world is. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was really small then. Like one of the nicest things somebody said once about the Suicide Commandos, you know, we were a punk rock band when you could own all the punk rock records, there were that few of them, yeah. you know, you could own them all. <laughs> you could own every punk rock record there was because there weren't that many. <laughs> and that's when we were, that's when we were a punk rock band. I got all of them, all six. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's amazing. There weren't that many. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a good, it was a good time. And it was small. It was just re- It was small. The whole, the whole CB's thing and every, I mean, it was pretty small. Yeah. You know, and it was, it, you know, I mean, now you hear, Hey, ho, let's go at the baseball game. But you know, the, the Ramones could not get the kind of success they deserved in the seventies. You know yeah. I mean? They just couldn't. And, uh, it's a shame. It was a shame. Yeah. Arguably, they 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 road dogged relentlessly. Like the Ramones' career never stopped moving until they did, which is crazy. Just to keep yeah. turning out stuff. Like if you try to go through their discography, it's 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 a work. Like, and they never let up on who they are, what they did. But I think because of that, that's why that now they they gained that respect as all the towns it's like they they were like the Johnny Appleseed of punk band starters you know what i mean like when they would leave a town a band would form cuz like oh they can do it we can do it and like 
Yeah, and I, well, and unfortunately, they've all passed right. too, except for Marky Ugh. and uh, yeah. CJ. But those are later guys. Those are filling, not to discredit them, but you know, what I mean, like they filled in later. No, no, it was. It, it kind of changed for me after Tommy. Left. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Well, he was a he was a well one. There's your your connect your like friend. Um, and like uh, he did had a lot to do with their songwriting and recording. And as a songwriter, I'd imagine you would. Yeah, and a and a producer. Right. So I'd imagine wow. a lot of it, uh, on that band was that guy. You know. So. Well, it was all it was all of them. They all wrote. They all did a lot. I mean, it was, but it was great. Yeah. So you guys got back together after kind of like, I think there was a quote from you saying like, "All the Ramones are gone, but we're still here. Why haven't we got back together?" Someone in the Suicide Commandos said that. We were just kind of musing. I mean, we were sad about that. You know that. They were gone. We decided to make another album while we were all still here, which we did in uh, 2017. It's yeah. a fucking great record. And uh, thanks, man. I, you know, uh, we did we did really well in Minneapolis with that record, but I kind of felt like it it did that record did not leave the Twin Cities, and I that kind of bugs me. Yeah, I got you know the guy. Uh, Howard, who is doing the PR for this record of mine, I really wish he would have done the PR for that record. He's doing a great job. Yeah, Howard's I think awesome. he would have done. How'd you come across Howard? Howard and I, he had a band around 1980, 79 called The Nurses. Yeah. And uh, we booked the Crackers, played some shows around the uh, Baltimore, D.C. area with The Nurses. That's how I met. That's how I met Howard. That's awesome. I always he he's got his hand. He knows he knows people in the scene and like on like a different level. I'm like I I haven't dove into looking to his career, but the nurses I have to check him out. That's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, that's I don't know, that's a bummer that it didn't reach too far. But hopefully, hopefully some people from this dive into it because it's a it's yeah it's beautiful. I'm I'm sorry. I said, I'm proud of that record. You know, it really, it really just kind of sounded like, uh, you know, it sounds like us now. And, uh, but that we would have a musical connection that we could do that now. That was really fun. It was really fun to me. And it wasn't inauthentic. It wasn't like, we're getting together to do the thing. And like it, like how you said it, no, we, we we didn't try to sound like we sounded in 1977. Was it sounds it like really... it sounds like it's you guys now, but still doing like the same type of like it's as energetic as the first record in the good way, but it's got the songwriting chops and the production of what you guys can do now, and like yeah, that was satisfying. I like the way that record yeah, sounds. It's a really good record. Um, you guys did a bunch. Thank you. <laughs> You guys did a bunch of cool stuff with um, with the promoting of that too. Like apparently, you guys got a highway, a stretch of highway named after you guys. We we do. We uh, I I can't say that I participate, but Chris and Dave, because I don't live there, yeah. they go out and uh, clean up the litter on this patch of highway that's the suicide co- sponsored by the Suicide Commandos. <laughs> that's awesome. 
<laughs> it might be kind of alarming of a highway to drive down. A suicide Commando Highway. I don't know if I want to go down this, but <laughs> that's so awesome. Um, so when you dove into more of your solo career, because you've put out like six records, and I think, is this the seventh record um, that is coming out now? I would have to. Uh, every, I would have to. Let me see. I guess I can count them as East River Blues, Bridge Songs. An all too human, can go wild one. I made two with Ali Smith, and I made. This is my eighth record. Okay. If you count the two, if you count the two duets record I made with Ali Smith, I think it's my eighth yeah. solo record. The, and the ones with Ali are really good. You guys lock up together harmony wise, and like, those are really. Co- How'd you meet Ali? How'd that come about? Ali was my girlfriend at the time. Okay. And did you meet her? Did she play out in another group? And like, or she did. She was the bass player in a band called Speedball Baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all. Awesome. Like, you guys lock it in. That's a tight. Those two sol- uh, duet records. It sound really good. Um, and that kind of. They were re- They were. They were really fun to make too. Uh, those were kind of Valentines to her. You know, they. That's. I tried to make. Uh, environment for her to shine as a singer, you know, and uh, it was it was fun. They were fun to make, really fun. And it kind of set the tone for like this new one in a way. Everywhere you've been, like this record you have coming, is it released yet, or it's gonna be coming on uh, March fifth? Okay. Is the release date? And like, like the singer songwriter aspect to it. Does she record some harmonies on it? I'm trying to think. No. no, but I have these amazing, I have these amazing girls sing yeah. on it. Uh, Dar, one of them's Daria Grace. She's the one that does the ukulele duet with me. She has a band called Daria Grace and the Pre-War Ponies, and they uh, they sing pop music from the 20s and 30s, like sheet music, pop music, you know, and they kind of, they, they, they stay, yeah, they stay away from the, you know, most well-known ones too. So they're really good. And the other singers, um, Vebeka Sagastad, she's a pop star in Norway. She's, but she lives by Daria. I met, I met her through Daria and she's awesome too. Her, uh, she played me this record called Thinker Bell that she was on with some Norwegian producer and uh, there's a song called Summer Days on that that I just lo- was like my favorite song I heard last year She so those girls sing all over the record and Gary Lewis came in and sang a harmony on one of the songs Gary from the Jayhawks and uh, uh, Dan Prater from Beat Rodeo sings on one of the songs and uh so there's a lot of there's a lot of singing on this record, you know, and that, that makes me happy too. Vocally, it's all the harmonies are beautiful, the melodies are beautiful, and it's good songwriting. Um, now, how many of these guys besides the two singer, or did they trickle through some of the other seven releases? Or are these uh, did they all just join you on this? Um, on this? Not you know, there's a lot of new blood on okay. this record. Uh, uh, the guy that the guitar players on this record have all pretty much played with me before. Uh, John Grayboff probably does the heavy lifting on 
guitar and pedal steel guitar on this. And John uh, is based out of Santa Fe, New Mexico now, but we've worked a lot over the years. John played in Ryan Adams and the Cardinals, and he played uh, Bats Up, Iris Dement, and a bunch of other really good Laura Cantrell, good people. And uh, Kenny Vaughn, who plays Marty Stewart in the Fabulous Superlatives, he's I, who I think are the best country band in America right now. But just uh, Kenny and I go back to punk days. And uh, in fact, a, we had a version of his band, Johnny Three, in New York for a little while where we played some really good shows. But he and I go back to the 70s and he came in and played on a couple songs and then if I can ever help it, I always get Mitch Easter to mix my records, yeah. which means I always ask him to play guitar on a song or two, too, which he does. So uh, all the guitar players I've worked with before, the, the electric bass player, Mark Sidgwick, I've done a lot of work with, too. And uh, But then uh, the drummer is actually my daughter's fiancé, a guy named T.J. Miani. And he brought in... Uh, Tony Garnier to play stand-up bass on three songs. Uh, Tony is Bob Dylan's musical director, and Tony plays bass in TJ's jazz trio. So, uh, so that yeah. was some new blood. Tony, Tony and TJ. Uh, I had not recorded with TJ before, and uh, I love his feel on this record. He's got like a soulful kind of jazz touch, and uh, I think it suited the songs really well. To tie in with the Dylan reference, like it's crazy how um, all these, I mean, all these factors work together, and it's cool that it's it, it's so well done. Like it doesn't, it seems like one tight band. Like even though you've just told me this, like this group of all these different people coming in in different ways, it sounds really put together and sounds like it's a tight group of people to play. Well, they, these are really. These are pro. These are pro singers and music players, and uh, and we did most of the basics, you know, in one studio. We did rhythm guitars, uh, bass and drums, and the background singing all in the same place in uh, Eric Amble's Cowboy Technical Services Studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. So, I mean, gotcha. it is of a piece. Right. And then, you know, then some other stuff were done, was done in other, you know, some of it was done up in Woodstock uh, and some of the singing I did at my own studio because I just like to sing when nobody's around. And uh, But, yeah, the, a lot of it was done in this one studio and then it was all mixed in, you know, one place too. So I think that lends a cohesive... Okay, that uh, makes that makes sense why that feels there like that. Um, did, did most of this come uh, together before, like the pandemic? All these basic tracks. Okay. Yes. That makes yeah. sense and why it's like not um, split up like that. I really dig the the track um, "Cigarettes, Coffee, and You." I like the narrative of that one. Yeah, Kenny, Kenny plays on. Yeah, the girls sing great, and Kenny Vaughn on guitar on that too. I love That's it. A great yeah. tune. Um, also, I know it's not on here, but the, you had a. Um, there's a track on. I think it was just on your YouTube, which a uh, which a uh, white privilege. 
that I thought was really good. Oh yeah, that was a that was a bit. That's a song called "Pretty Picture" from my solo record that was called "Kingo, a Wild One." And yeah, I got so upset about that. What happened with George Floyd? That and that was kind of a response to. I just wanted to put that out there. It was something I wanted to say about it. And that song just happened to kind of voice the same feeling. So that was, that was why I thank you. Well, you know what? Thank, thank, the, thank God. This is not new stuff, right. unfortunately. And you know what? Thank God for cell phones. Yeah. People can't do it. With, People can't do it with nobody watching anymore. And I think that's going to change. Well, definitely, it definitely has. Like, everything's to in for good and for bad. For this, In that case, good, because you can see everything and you can see blatantly how um, horrible people are treated in that way. And, like, there's no denying it. Here's a video of it. And then, in a way, it also kind of puts everyone in this way of acting like they're always being recorded which you know maybe is good I like as a teacher right I'd imagine you get in this mindset of always having the lead by example and like in times like this how do you how you handle navigating that and you know I mean like without like uh, I don't know without uh kind of pushing making it seem like you're being too preachy in a way but like it's a it's a interesting um Interesting, interesting times to try to navigate. Um, how did the teaching career come around? Uh, come along to kind of jump back to the beginning of the conversation. Well, you know what? Uh, somewhere uh, I had a daughter in the early '90s, and suddenly, just it became you know necessary to find something to do that was a little more st- stable yeah. and could pay for the could pay for the braces and stuff and so <laughs> i figured if i had to get up and work a job every day i might as well try to find something that made me feel useful so i chose to i had i had a friend that had been a clothing designer that went into teaching and i kind of followed her and uh yeah it's it's had its ups and downs but it's been good overall it's been a good good experience for me gotcha. it, it works out as far as like doing um was it weekend warrior dashes you can still play out on the weekends and stuff and like you're out you're done usually by four <laughs> except for uh when yeah you gotta... and summer summer summer's right. off it's yeah there's a lot a lot of good stuff like so I that guess in the in the sense that it really works out to be a musician and be a teacher well, pleasure. That was nice. And uh, I always, it's fun to revisit the Cleveland time. And you obviously did your homework and uh, I appreciate well, thank it. Thank you. I appreciate you. This has been great. Long dark hair, lily white hands, blue eyed original sin. You're everything you ever were. And everywhere you've been, you're everywhere.